G'day, Osha here, coming to you from Gadigal Land, part of the Eora Nation, and paying my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, thanks for joining me. If you're new to the podcast, I appreciate you being here. I'll make the show with a few people now. It's going pretty well, but I do need to pay them, so you might hear an ad here. If you do hear an ad, thank you. If you don't hear an ad, you're going to hear something cool from Emmanuel Kelly. Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've learned that everything in your own life your own actions, uh, taking a piece of alcohol, you snorting cocaine, you, which is the things I've done, right? Whatever it is, you typing on a keyboard, these are all you, 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 you. You're in control, right? Your choices make up where your future takes you. But the choice that you make ends up being a bad choice. That's not anyone's fault. That's your fault. The things you can't control are the weather, Okay, you can't control whether you will stay healthy or not and you will live or not. So don't try. Don't try and control the things you can't control. Only control the things you can control. And live every day as though it's not your last. Live every day as though it's your first. That is singer and songwriter and incredibly inspirational advocate, Emmanuel Kelly. And this is better than yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being a part of the show. Welcome. This is a podcast that hopes to help you make today better than yesterday. That's it. It's what it says on the box. Does what it does. I'm here a couple of times a week now. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Wednesdays, we're taking a quick look back at a previous guest. And Fridays, I'm here with you. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a hearing aid wearing glasses wearing, hip surgery, recovering, 47-year-old white dude. Thanks for being a part of the show. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. Always lovely to get your emails. Lovely to hear from you. And thank you so much for all the lovely feedback about last Friday's episode. Thank you. It's nice to know those episodes are resonating. So thanks heaps. Real quick, to tell you about my guest today, Emmanuel Kelly is an incredible Australian human being. His story... You may not have heard it. You may have heard it. It's worth repeating. Emmanuel was found as an infant, it's a baby, in a box on a battlefield on the border of Iraq. He doesn't quite know how old he is. He has no birth certificate. He was found with no passport, no known identity. Nobody really knew where he came from. But these two soldiers found him and took him to the Mother Teresa Orphanage in Baghdad, where he lived there for the next seven years. 
Both Emmanuel and his brother, uh, their limbs were deformed by chemical warfare. Emmanuel lives every day of his life with the results of decisions that had absolutely nothing to do with him, things that happened to his mum when she was pregnant with him, decisions made by people to use a particular weapon in a particular part of the world, and um, it affected his mum and it affected him and... Yeah, he, he did not really have much of a future. He had a, uh, an in, intense, intense upbringing growing up in war, which was pretty intense. He talks about that quite a bit in this program, actually. His mum, Moira Kelly, an incredible human, found out about Emmanuel and his brother and at the age of seven figured out a way to bring Emmanuel and his brother to Australia. In Australia, he underwent... Uh, a, a huge amount of surgery uh, over 14 years, learning how to walk, learning how to feed himself, learning how to use a knife and fork. And as you'll hear in this conversation, that was just the start for Emmanuel. He had to really face a lot of intense demons and battle his own insecurity. Completely understandable from where I sit, but that's how he describes it. And come out the other side and emerge free of the, as much as he could, the physical scars, um, but the emotional scars of the trauma that happened to him when he was young and also the trauma that happened to him before he was born. You may have first seen Emmanuel singing Imagine as a part of X Factor, which is a TV show, a singing TV show in Australia. Emmanuel is a singer. He's a songwriter. He's got a new single out called Never Alone, which was recorded and released during the height of COVID-19. He wanted to inspire people even the dark, even in the darkest moments of their lives. The video features, oh, crikey, uh, Demi Lovato, Chris Martin, Terrence Howard, Brian Grazer, Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> it's the best. Uh, it's a pretty uh, a pretty epic tale. Emmanuel's story is, is pretty fantastic, and I'm really grateful that he took the time to come on the show today because what he's been through and how he's managed to become radiantly joyful in his life despite everything that happened to him through his life and happened to him before he was born is a true, true inspiration. I'm really grateful that he came on the show and enjoy. I'm really grateful that I could speak with you today. Your story is remarkable and... You know, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years since Australia first came to know you. 10 years? You can't. That can't be right. We're old men, dude. Well, you're not. You're not even 30, but I'm an old. I'm nearly 50. You're 60. You look good, mate. Well, great lighting. It's all about the lighting. <laughs> I like, I'm not even fucking with you. I've got like, I've got, I've got, my guys at work rigged me up this incredible LED strip and. Like, it's all about the lighting here, buddy. It's all- Mate, you look you look good. You look good. You <laughs> honestly, I would. You look the same as you you did back in the uh, Australian Idol days. Yeah, but I'm I'm 11 years sober now, so probably there's something <laughs> different about that. <laughs> but your your story's pretty special. But there's people that listen to the show from all all over the world. I, I, get, I was trying to think, I was like trying to think about, you know, what is it that I am common with the people that come on my show? And I guess the one thing that I, the one thing that I have in common with you is we're both immigrants, yeah. but I'm white. So no one cares. Where are you from? Uh, I, I, well, my mom is from Lithuania. My dad's from Czech Republic. What's Czech Republic now? Uh, and they met, in Lo- they met in London and I got born and my brother got born and we came here in the seventies. And, you know, by looking at me, cool, yeah, it's pretty cool. By looking at me, you can't kind of tell, but then I've got this really quite Jewy last name, even though I'm not Jewish. And so only when you see my name on the roll call did things get different. <laughs> but your story is, is pretty amazing. Thanks. Mate. Do you remember, like how early, how far back can you remember? More like, I remember probably this after the first year I was in the orphanage. So, for those people, I suppose, that don't know my story, I'm originally from Iraq, right? And I was found in a box on a battlefield. And there's a lot that people I still, like, even I just discovered, you know, a few years back about my story because I met someone that apparently was in the orphanage, which I also remember meeting them. But then it took me a while to kind of get into that moment of, of, of remembrance, right? But they say you can remember a lot subconsciously, and I think tapping into that 
was pretty amazing for me. But no, I, it was a, I was found in a box on a battlefield by two soldiers who were supposedly shooting at each other. They heard a baby cry. They went towards that baby. Yeah, this is a lot. This is the stuff that people don't know that I'm only now sharing, which I've known for a long time. But I, I also didn't want, when I was on X Factor, I didn't want sympathy from people. I wanted, I, so I didn't want to share too much, if that makes sense. And so, but yeah, it was found by these two soldiers who were supposedly shooting at one another. And they heard a baby cry and they went towards that, the, the, the baby crying, the child. And they found the box, and in that box was this little boy with this great jawline that can cut cheese. And they thought, let's cut some cheese. No, they didn't think that. But they um, they thought, you know what, they, they made a vow in that moment to protect this child, and then obviously that child was me. And they took me to an orphanage where I was then raised there for the next seven years of my life, experiencing and seeing executions, gunshots, bombings, every day wondering whether I was going to live or die. And so for the next seven years, I was raised in this orphanage, seeing these things. I was also the only mentally abled one in the orphanage, along with my brother, who I met in the orphanage. I um, discovered a brother in the orphanage. And then eventually this incredible woman, Moira Kelly, who's a humanitarian in Australia. And Aussies, a lot of Aussies would probably know who she is, but she had heard about my brother and I, came to Iraq. And I remember three days before getting, you know, meeting her for the first time, I was five years old. Nuns had told, there's this woman, she's going to come in, she's going to help you and all this sort of stuff. And so for three days straight, I sat on a window ledge waiting and waiting and waiting. And on the third day, this woman arrives. And I remember thinking three things. One, can she help us? Two, is she an angel? And three, how the hell did this white woman get in this country? Because she was whiter than white chocolate. I mean, she was white. And so she comes in and takes us out for the day and raises us out of this, this darkness that we were in. I mean, for five years straight, I, it was all about survival for me. And so meeting her kind of gave me hope. She took us out and we got to see Iraq. We got to see the River of Babylon. Like we got to see the beauty of this place instead of the, the nastiness um, that had given me the perception that the entire world was the exact same. And so one thing we have the ability to control is, is in my opinion, is perception. Right? And so that day she shifted my perspective of life. And, and instead of going from survival and just survival, I now had hope in me, in me. And so she took us out. And at the end of that day, my brother asked her something really powerful. He said, can you help Emmanuel and I? And she says, I'll do my best. And he goes, well, if you can't help Emmanuel, and, and me at the same time, just take him, don't worry about me. My brother's not even my biological brother. He's not, he's not related to me by blood, but he had this love, right? And so I always say the only thing thicker than blood is love. It's the only thing that brings people together. And so she worked her ass off for two years, and two years later she brings us out to Australia from the cultural changes, one being women drive in Australia and Iraq women don't. And my grandmother made that very, very clear that Australia is ran by women, not men. I mean, she, she made it super clear, right? Happy wife, happy life, essentially. I also learned after, after a while as well, but she, uh, you know, I had massive cultural changes. I learned, you know, I had a bunch of surgeries, learned how to use a knife and fork for the first time, learned how to walk for the first time, all the basic things, things that we take for granted. And then eventually, I went on a TV show. I would love to get into how the music came into your life, but I asked this because one of my closest friends was adopted and he came through a weird system that existed in Queensland in the 70s, which is still yeah. it's bananas to believe now, but, you know, basically the unwed mums were sent out to Roma, which is um, kind of Midwestern Queensland, and, you know, they were just going away to work on a farm and they would just be gone for six months. So it was the moment they kind of started showing and then they would come back and with no kid. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, unfortunately, he, he was one of the last few through, but the day that the law changed in Queensland, he found out who his biological mother was and he suddenly met all these people that looked like him. It was, so he has, yeah. he's, he's lucky to, you know, have these two sets of parents. So I'm, I'm wondering as an adoptee, as a kid who's been brought up by someone who's not 
his biological mother. I'm guessing you would have had to do a fair amount of processing around what happened to your original parents and how you ended up in that box because that's some that's the kind of thing yeah. that can if you carry that thing with you, like it gets to be easily to see how you could carry that with you and just use that as a justification to kind of have all kinds of behaviour going, oh, well, you weren't found in a box, fuck, you know, and just yeah, yeah, how, yeah. how did you come to reckon with with that? I mean, for a while I didn't, man. I mean, it was for a while I didn't accept it. I didn't want to accept it. I didn't even accept me the way I looked. But I think as a kid, every kid has, you know, their issues, right? And as I got older, I actually embraced it a lot less. Why? Because when I told people the story, their attitude went from you're super cool to, oh, poor you. And I, I don't like the poor you car, right? Don't don't feel sorry for me. I don't want your sympathy, right? I want, I, you know, if you can empathize with me because you have a similar story, great. But if you, you, you don't have a similar story, then embrace your own and embrace that mine is my own and and work with it instead of sympathize with it, right? D- does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, I think for a while I didn't accept it, but then, you know, and even, so I went on X Factor and when I went on X Factor, I didn't even really fully accept it then, right? I, I, I kind of just, I'll be honest, I went on that show for two reasons. One, I liked music and two, because I want to, a pickup. I wanted a hookup. I wanted a kiss from a chick. I mean, that's literally the only two reasons I wanted to go on the show, right? And I knew. I mean, I knew. I had made it to the live rounds, okay, the the television auditions, right? So, and I knew that they'd air it, whether it was a success or not, because it's good TV for them, right? So I kind of, I kind of knew that they're going to air something like this. So the reality is, you're going to be on TV. Right. And not just TV on an interview because of who my mum is or because of the amazing work that she does, but TV because it's for me. And, you know, girls are going to see that I can sing and it's going to be awesome. And I remember getting on the bus after my audition, after the audition went live. I remember getting on the bus and going back to Hamilton, which is where I went to school in Melbourne, four hours from Melbourne. And I remember getting on this bus and this gorgeous girl I've liked for literally months now she she's always jumps on the bus at a certain time and i never got the confidence to ask her out or talk to her or just even say a word or even look at her right when she walks past this time i didn't have to do anything she just sat right next to me and we started chatting and <laughs> i mean we we had a few passions it was great so you know those were the two reasons right i went on the show and then those reasons eventually changed right because because of my story and because of who I was the world started putting enormous amounts and I'm sure you probably got this you know when you first took your first role in tv or whatever it is right but the world and the the country started putting a lot of weight on 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 your shoulders 17 I'm 18 years old right at this point and I've got the entire the entire country on my shoulders expecting a certain thing out of me because I'm an inspiration, right? And I couldn't accept that. I didn't accept that. I was found in a box and on a battlefield. I, people expected that I, I should be a certain way. I should act a certain way. I should be a certain way. And I was just an 18-year-old boy who happened to become famous overnight. I mean, that's ridiculous. And then a week later, I'm not just famous in one country. I'm famous in bloody 40 different countries with tens of millions of views and interviews around the entire globe. I mean, when you get that, that's on another level. And so when people start expecting certain things from you, it gets damaging. And before you know it, you start embracing all this fake love and when you embrace all this fake love, your mind starts to walk and you start thinking you're God's gift to earth, right? You start thinking you are a God. And when you get that, then it just, it drives you to a different world. And so for me, I didn't want to accept who I was. I didn't want to accept my responsibilities. I didn't want to accept, you know, that power that had been given to me. I just wanted it for fun, and for a while, I enjoyed it. And for a while, it was fun. And for a while, I partied. I 
with celebrities with the whole package right around the world and toured and you know had a lot of drinks and and really embraced it and got into some areas that I probably shouldn't have gotten into and then after a while it started getting to me and it started really 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 getting to me and I didn't embrace who I am and this is a part of my story and the past is the past and those bombs that I heard and those things I think a lot of the times the more fake love I got and the more loudness I got the more I suppose in some ways that PTSD of Iraq and the bombs and the gunshots kind of started creeping into my mind the darkness started to come in and it's weird because I can't even explain how but it's like the more noise that's around you. And I don't mean noise like physical noise. I mean noise like the more you start forgetting your heritage or where you're from and the more you push it away, the more it actually consumes you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't accept it. Well, I'm guessing something happened. <laughs> you, had to, yeah. you had to do a bit of work. What happened? Uh, so I, you know, after X Factor, everything kind of took off, loads of things happened, I toured, but then when you receive all this fake love, when you get no love and that no love comes from not necessarily whether you're good at something or not, but because of the way you look and that starts to really warp you in a different direction. So you get in this warped mind and this God complex, and then you're getting this, this brutal, Hollywood executives and labels and managers and agents, specifically agents and labels, and then even executives at, at major corporations, say like Nikes and the Apples and things like that, saying that they don't want to work with you or that they don't want to sign with you because you excuse me, you have what their perception of you is that you have disability. And they don't like that, right? And then being a Middle Eastern just got some really intense people here, right? So yeah. naturally being a Middle Eastern, right, that certainly gets to you and you get death threats and you get phone calls and you get things like that saying that, you know, you're a terrorist and you should die and someone's going to kill you and just things like that just started really jumping in. And so the more love you get, the more hate sometimes you also attract, right? And so, you know, good people attract sometimes the negatives, right? And so that started happening. And at 18, right, I didn't have to deal with it at all. So I started getting on drugs, started getting on alcohol, started abusing myself, started spending all the money that I'd been receiving and getting. And before I knew it, I was spending more than I was earning. And I wasn't just spending more than I was earning on you know, smart things. I was spending more than I was earning on dumb things, girls, drugs, alcohol. And I just, I went down a really dark path, just a really dark place. And I, before I knew it, I was homeless on the side of the road in LA. No. It's interesting though. I didn't end up quite homeless, but I, you know, looking back at my time, that's certainly in my experience, I was like, that'd never happen to me. I'd be too smart for that. <laughs> and I thought that too. I thought that too. But no, man, I was, I was, I was homeless on the side of a road, and not even my mum knew, not even my godfather knew at times. And he was here with me. But I would send him away. I'd be like, "Look, go to Utah. I'm going to work on some stuff here." And be like, "Okay, cool." And where are you going to stay? Oh, I got a friend. I got a friend. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. That was the thing. Like, did you have like a a bag with all your clothes in it and, and a laptop and? Were you all like on Beverly and Fairfax? Where were you? Yep. No, I was in West Hollywood on Santa Monica Boulevard. One of those nights I slept outside a place called Joan. It's a it's a restaurant on Santa Monica. You, you've heard of that place? Yeah. It's a great place too. And honestly, one of the reasons why I chose that spot specifically was because a lot of celebrities go there as well. And I knew a couple artists that went there as well. And so I would just... I'd make it look like that I'm not camping, but I was. I, I didn't have a place. And I was hoping that one of these people like Akon or someone like that would cross there and I would be able to connect the dot. Um, incredibly enough, it was this guy named Dr. Bill who had heard about me and he saw me and we said g'day. 
And uh, he invited me to this event. And I went to the event. And it was awesome. And then he introduced me to someone else, a group called Metal, which stands for Media, Entertainment, Leaders and whatnot. And they had me come in. He heard my story, had me come in and speak. And the members are like Randy Jackson, Akon, all these kind of real A-list crews and big timers in, in, in the music world. And so I went to speak and before I knew it, I was, you know, I was in front of Fuji and Akon. Like, I think you just, you, you manifest things. Now, it didn't work. I didn't get a deal from them or anything, but I was in front of them, right? And that's what mattered. Still, that night I went back, same place, slept the same place. But there was a guy I met at Metal. His name was Josh. And Josh and I kind of became mates. And we went out a couple of times. He grabbed the feed because he had some projects he wanted me to work on. It was just a, it was just an amateur writer that was trying to, you know, also make it, but wealthy family, right? And so he had a place. And he's like, where are you sleeping? I'm like, I'll be honest. And I was, I was, it was the first person I was honest with. And I told him what was going on. I was like, shit. And he's like, listen, man, my couch is yours. That was, I got on a, on his couch but for six months, man. I was still, I mean, I was still on substances and shit like that. And so for six months, I was just, I went down a rabbit hole of depression and anxiety and, you know, all this sort of thing. And then the six month mark, I just had enough. Didn't like who I was, the person I looked at, the, looked at on the other side of the mirror. So I looked at myself, you know, I just painted it. So when I was looking at myself, though, you know, there was this one day, I don't know why, but this one day I asked myself a question and that question was, Emmanuel, what happened to the kid that had balls? When I was in Iraq, a group of soldiers walked in and they put a gun with my brother in my hands. Have to pull the trigger. Going for the execution. Why did they do that? Whatever reason. Six months prior, I'd seen an execution outside the orphanage. So it could have been because I saw something. I don't know. I'm five, six years old at this point. It was after I'd met this woman who was going to save our lives, Aunty Moira and mum now. But yeah, they, they pointed the guns and I bit one of the soldiers as hard as I could on the leg. And the soldier put, shoots the roof and points the gun back at me. And he's about to pull the trigger for the second time. Means he's about to pull it. I can feel. I can feel the heat of the bullet. Right. I can feel. Just. You could, yeah, I think it's like your whole life flashes. Right. That whole concept of your whole life flashes. In this case, I didn't have much of a life, so there wasn't much to flash. But what I did have was this enormous amount of feeling that just like just shivered down my spine and and my whole body, and I knew it was done. I was done. It was an inkling of hope inside of me. And I just I just looked him straight in the eye, hoping that he would see it. And a soldier that was higher ranked than him literally yelled out, stop. Walked up towards me, looked at the soldier, looks at me, looks at the soldier, looks at me again. And he says, you've got balls. Look at me and he goes, you've got balls. And turns around, walks away. And as he walked away, he just goes, Every one of those soldiers were out of that place. We lived. I remember that experience, right? And I looked at myself in that mirror and it's like I had this flashback of that experience when I was looking at myself in that mirror. And I said, Emmanuel, what happened to the boy that's on balls? Punched the mirror as hard as I could, as hard as I could. The next day, that boy that gave me the couch he buys a new mirror and he goes, dude, you're lucky I'm a rich Jew. Don't break this mirror though, please. <laughs> I said, thanks. Put the mirror back up and I go, I'm not breaking it. And I look at myself in that new mirror and I'm like, Manuel, there's the kid that falls. It's like, I don't know what, but it's like I needed a moment to remind myself. And I did. And I forced that memory. And from that point onwards, for about 24 hours onwards, I started to like look up inspirational quotes motivational quotes, I called up some friends in Utah where my godfather was and I said, I need you to fly me to Utah. I need you to pay for my airfares and fly me to Utah. I need to get out of LA. And so they flew me to Utah. And for the next six months, I just spent my life in Utah, kind of finding myself again, going for walks, just 
you know, remembering who I was, looking up inspirational quotes, reading quotes, like just reading from different experiences, from, you know, spiritual leaders to just business leaders, just everyone. There was this one powerful quote that I saw, and it was from this guy named Wayne Dyer. That quote was, it's none of your business what anyone thinks of you. But it felt like it needed an ending to it, right? Because, okay, if it's none of my business, then whose business is it, okay? So I looked at myself in that mirror and I said, well, hang on. I said, okay, Emmanuel, if it's not your business, whose business is it? And I thought to myself, well, hang on. Maybe I'm looking at this wrong. Maybe instead of thinking about whose business is it, it is, I just got to think about what is my business. And my business is what I think of myself. When I thought about that, I realized, okay, what do I think of myself then? If it's my business, what I think of myself, what do I think of myself? And I responded with, I love me. It's that simple. I know that sounds like wishy-washy and whatnot, but it's not. The reality is it's not. Like, you know, love is love, okay? Whether you're a dude, a woman, a child, it doesn't matter. Love is love. And if you love yourself and you embrace yourself, that's there's nothing more powerful than that. And so I, I, I looked at myself and I said, I love me. It's that simple. I love me. I didn't believe it, one inch. But you know what? After six months of saying it over and over and over and over again, I started to believe it. And when I started to believe it, I started to like manifest the things I wanted to achieve. I made some goals. I said, okay, I'm going to change my life. I'm embracing that this is part of me. This is my story. Those bombs, those executions, those scary experiences, those nightmares, that's a part of me. I'm embracing that. I'm treating myself as though these are gifts that were given to me to make me strong. And so, and so, and so when I realized that, I, I just I started to just get things moving. And before I knew it, man, I was on stage with like David Foster and opening for Snoop Dogg and Paul Oakenfold performing with them. And then the big finish was Coldplay. When I stood on Coldplay stage in Melbourne, Australia. That was like the final nail on the coffin of me saying, I embrace who I am and this is who I am. If you don't like it, and don't like it, move on, find someone else. <laughs> I've spoken with other people who visually appear different to the rest of society, whether it be facial piercings, facial tattoos, it's been described to me as a visual disability, mm-hmm. and they describe this feeling of being invisible, as they walk down the street, people avert their eyes. They don't want to look at them. They can go to the shops. People won't even recognize they're there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would you relate to what that feels like? Yeah. Yeah. Not for a while. Yeah. hundred percent. So to go from that growing up in, in Australia to be invisible, just suddenly being super visible, superstar, 50 squillion views on YouTube, you know, 40 countries interviews every day, da, 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 to then going I've lived in Los Angeles. I lived there for 10 years. You're homeless. You don't exist. You're invisible. People step over you and go, should have got insurance, pal. What was that like? What was that feeling of invisibility, visibility, and then invisibility like? It was horrible. It was deep. It felt as though someone had... Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Indiana Jones, like, I think it's Raiders of the Last Act, where that guy, like, and he's, like, putting his hand on your heart and he's, like, pulling the heart out, right? You've seen, you know that scene, okay? That psycho dude, okay. So it's like that. It's like literally feeling someone, like, shoving their hands inside of you and tearing an identity, tearing your identity just away from, and you are just a piece of meat. You are just a product, a a thing that's failed, a miserable thing that's failed and you're just on the side of a road, right? Now, going from all of this, the the, the visibility, right? At that point, I didn't know what it felt like to to have, to not be invisible. So for me, it wasn't really that much of a difference as a kid when people would look away because I just assumed that I didn't really notice it as much, right? Because I didn't know any different. Now I know different. And then to have that be snatched away. And the worst part about it was 
wasn't snatched away because yeah, part of it it was, right? But it wasn't snatched away because I wasn't talented. It was snatched away because one, I allowed it to be snatched away. And two, coming to terms with that was really difficult because I would blame everyone. But coming to terms with the fact that I allowed this to happen. This was on me. This was not on anyone else. This was on me. Because if I spent my money right, I mean, there was a bunch of reasons, right? Then probably wouldn't have happened. And, you know, I would have found other ways because I would have invested or whatever it was. But the reality is it happened. So it's on me. And two, it was also the fact that America, the country that you assume should be the most accepted, like acceptance is the number one thing here. To realize that actually it's the complete opposite. Again, perception is the complete opposite. But there is no acceptance here. It's it's what you're told to accept here. The entertainment industry is one of those industries that someone's into you, someone's into you, right? If you want to get somewhere, I mean, I've had gay men come up to me in, in, in LA, successful men, grab my privates and say, I'll, I'll help you make it and, you know, I'll help you get this role or I'll help you get this, but we should go in the back room, right? I've had that happen, right? I mean, frankly, I have a prosthetic leg, so, you know, I told them, and I'm Australian, so I told them very clearly that if they touch me again like that, they'll, I'll make sure they'll never able to touch anyone again, right? So it was pretty brutal. And growing up in Iraq and seeing that, it didn't affect me. So I gave him a good squirrel tackle with my fake leg. That's basically what happened, right? And metal on, on, on balls, that ain't, a, that ain't a nice piece of contact, right? But there are a lot that would, that would go for that just to get there. Right? But for me, I didn't accept that this is how you had to make it. I didn't accept that that's how you have to do it. And because I didn't accept it as well, that was one of the reasons why, right? But at the end of the day, I allowed these things to happen. I allowed. I am the person in control of my own future, my own path, and my own destiny. And I was so desperate that because of losing everything, I was so desperate that it also brought me into those spaces, which just caused more anxiety and more frustration, right? Desperation only invites negativeness right and so that's what happened and so to answer your question though it felt like someone had ripped out of me away from wow what would you say to what would you say to people who are listening about how they look at someone who's homeless because i dare say you would have had a few conversations with people out there on the street as well of course of course i'm judging book by its cover everyone's got a story Everyone really does have a story and there's no story that's more worse or more important or, than others. Every story is different. That's the reality of it. The definition of empathy, someone taught me this, right? If you plant this guy, Dr. Habib Sadegi, taught me this. Right? He speaks with an Iranian accent in American. So I always put these in advance. But he goes, Daniel, if you plant a piece of letter, if you plant a letter seed, or, or a pineapple seed, or, or something in the ground that can grow, he says. And it doesn't grow properly, or something happens, or it grows before in some way. Who do you blame? Yourself? The sun? The letters? The ground? What do you blame? Who do you blame? And I'm like thinking about it, and I'm like, mm, yeah blame myself because I probably didn't water properly and he goes wrong I said what do you mean and he goes you don't blame yourself you can't blame yourself this is out of your control and I'm like okay so what do I blame and he goes you don't blame anything you try and understand why and when you understand why you can fix it and if you can't fix it you can change it or you can pivot or you can recreate and he's like, you know what the definition of empathy is? I go, what? And he goes, exactly that. A piece of letters and trying to understand why it didn't grow properly. <laughs> I'm like, that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. It's a, it's a well, you know, rounded block thing, kind of like a, a Gandhi quote, right? But the reality is, right, it's true, right? You've got to understand why someone is where they are. Everyone's got a reason. Everyone's got a sob story. But once you understand why, 
you got two things that you can do. One, you can walk away and and part with them with no wisdom, nothing. Or two, you can help them. Now, that help can come in so many different forms. My help came from someone offering me a couch. But at the end of the day, I had to help me. That, that's what had to happen. But that person has to want, want to be helped, okay? And deep down, deep, deep, deep down, everyone does want to be helped. It's just they need someone or it could be you to kind of ignite that fume inside of them. So you help them in some way, right? And it could just be a piece of advice. It could be a word. It could be buying them a meal, whatever it is. But try stay clear from the tangible things right? because the tangible things don't really truly help. They, they're short-term, but they're not long-term. What really helped me was when I was sitting on the side of a road there was an individual that I went up to. It was a, it was a sort of a semi-famous artist, and not many people would would know who it is around the world. But it was him and his team, and I kind of went up, and I'm like, "Hey, you know, you just said something really, really powerful." He goes, "Never give up the fire. Keep fighting." It was a simple word. It was just simple words like that, right? And the reality is, it's 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 these simple things that that remind us right what we have what our abilities are and a couple other times some other people gave me some words of you know pearls of wisdom and advice and those were the things that like gave me a reason to live every day and want to keep living and want to keep up right so that's what you want to do just a moment from emmanuel kelly to let you know that on wednesdays I'm running uh, a bit of a recap of episodes that we've we've done before on the show. You can hear already we've got a Dr. Carl, a 20-minute version of Dr. Carl up. And um, this week we're going to have a, a visit with Yumi Steins, the first time she came and telling incredible hitchhiking stories when she was 18. It's pretty amazing. Uh, so just keep an eye out for those episodes on a Wednesday. I'd love to get your feedback on what you think of those and how they're going. If you do need me, send us your email at gmail.com. We'll get back to Emmanuel in a moment. You might hear an ad here. If you do, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on at BTYHQ. If you don't, we're back to Emmanuel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When we first knew you, when we first came, it's a perfect piece of television, you know. We see you. We have our judgments that happen in the faster than we can possibly imagine. Like before our empathy, before anything kicks in, we 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 see what you what your body looks like. Yeah. Then we hear you sing, and it's this perfect. Mm-hmm. Like in twenty seconds, it's the perfect three act structure. You know, it's it's yeah. set up conflict resolution. Incredible. But having done and worked on talent shows for a long time, and I would always say it to to kids who would they'd come out and they're going, "Oh, I can't believe I didn't get through to the next round." I'm like, "Listen, there's a you know there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference between hitting the notes and singing the song. You know, there's a difference between being note perfect and giving me goosebumps." When did music first come into your life? When did you first start to sing? What sort You're of right. What music was around? Was it like religious music? What was it? You're right. It was just 
we, I made up what I made up, you know. I would make up random melodies and tunes. I think it's always been a part of me. I, you know, I often think that maybe my, my parents were gypsies or something because music was just, it just came to me so naturally as a child. But I would just make up melodies and tunes. But it was my, my escape. It was my safe haven in Iraq. If a bomb went off, I'd start, you know, humming myself. If, if a bullet pierced the wall, I'd start humming myself. And so that was kind of the, the, the life that I lived in Iraq. Music was just a part of my escape, a part of my safety mechanism. I came out to Australia. So I was watching a, a TV show. And it was Idol, but it was American Idol, not Australian Idol. This was because Australian Idol started afterwards. It was American Idol and Kelly Clarkson was on stage and she performed. When I saw her perform, what was amazing about it was when I turned around to Peter, my godfather now, I said, Peter, Peter, you can make music for living? Right? And the funny part about me as a kid is I had an Indian accent. I was an Arab with an Indian accent because I was taught English by Indian nuns. So I'm like, Peter, you can make music for a living, you know? And Peter's like, yeah, you can. And I'm like, wow, I want to do this, <laughs> right? So, so he's like, all right, let's see what you can do. And so I started kind of, you know, pursuing it. But then what's amazing is I, I love being in front of a screen. Anytime... I had a chance to be the center of attention. I took it. I am the center of attention guy. I, I love that. Okay. Okay. Still do. And so I remember about two weeks later, I watched a movie called the taxi with Queen Latifah and fell in love, fell in love with films and fell in love with acting. So I actually started pursuing that route a lot more. Started taking classes, the whole thing. But then, I, you know, when I was about three, four years later, when I was about 11 years old, I started kind of researching a little bit and I discovered that if I went into the acting world, unfortunately what would happen is I would be pigeonholed and boxed into a certain look because I was, I had it, I was different, right? I looked different, so therefore I'm going to be pigeonholed into that. I'll never play a hopeless romantic role. I'll never play an action hero. I'll never play these things. And that irritated me. So I went into the only other thing that I loved and was good at, and that was music, singing. And so I started pursuing that um, goal and that element and discovered that there was no one like me physically that looked like me that was a pop star or achieved any real pop commercial success. And that's the day you know, I was 12 and a half years old and it was a beautiful afternoon in Yarra Valley at a school in, in Hillsville. And I was researching because it, it was my subject. I wanted to research it. I researched it in school and I remember the afternoon. And in that moment, my teacher looks at me. And so she says to me, what are you going to do when you grow up and when you leave school? I'm going to be the first person who's differently able than she goes differently able. What's that? I go, oh, it's a new word. I think it should, you know, it should be. Then I discovered that I didn't coin it, but still I, I felt pretty cool thinking that I thought I coined it. And I said, differently able, someone who looks physically different, make it in the pop industry and, and make it. And I told some other people in my family, they're like, you know, one in a billion, make it, Emmanuel. That's a big, I go, okay, no worries. I'll be that one in a billion. And so from that day onwards, I started to really kind of push on. But music was, it found me when I was in Iraq. It, it saved me. It's really weird. Music is symmetrical vibrations of air that give us emotional responses. You know, it's completely bonkers. It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. You know, mm -hmm. at least art, when we look at it, it's photons hitting our eyeballs, but those photons reflect something from our life or something. Music is just like when you hit the right cadence, when you hit a perfect cadence with a, you know, big power chord or whatever, when you hear that and yeah. the, the right you know, harmony on top of it, it's like a secret code. And then suddenly, boom, you're covered in goosebumps. Like we're, yeah. we're quite hackable. And it's used for everything, right? Yeah. I mean, how many times have you watched a movie and you see a scene and it's not a good movie, mm. right? It's not a good movie. You see a scene that has no music to it and you're like, God, that's terrible. But then you watch the same kind of movie that's also not a great script, right? It's really badly written, but there's music. And then suddenly you're, crying or you're emotional mm. and you're like how many times have we watched fast and the furious for example I mean, let's be real 
movie's just about shoot, you know, shooting one another, driving fast cars and hot girls. I mean, that's literally all it's about, and family. But the point is, how many times have you watched that and you're thinking to yourself, God, if that song wasn't in there or that music wasn't in there, yeah. you know, the movie would not. It's a really, a really powerful way to communicate to communicate a message. The only language that every single person in the world speaks. It's absolutely right. You're ab- absolutely right. So you're in America and, you know, people in Australia go, oh, I can't believe they fucked up the vaccine rollout. Like we are just, we're on top of the world, man. Australia, as far as COVID it goes, people have no clue how fucking good we have it here, right? You guys do. Man, um, I mean, the fact that there's squillions of miles of ocean between us and the rest of the world, we can tightly control who arrives and what happens to them oh, after 100%, they get it. 100%. And the fact that you, the government even put people in hotels and paid yeah. for them at the start, like yeah. that would never happen yeah. in America. Never in a million years. So you're in, you're in lockdown, you're in Utah, which I guess, you know, you're already slightly isolated. You know, it's not one of the big coastal cities like uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or Boston or whatever. You're in, you're over there and you're like, your lockdown is creating this piece of music, um, Never Alone. There was a lot of music that came out as a response to the pandemic. Where, where did this come from? Why did you Why did you choose this moment to go, you know what, I got this. This is a message I need to send out. I wrote Never Alone when I was 11 years old. And the original lyrics was when I, when I was 11 years old. My mum experienced a loss. It was the first child that she ever lost in Australia that she'd brought out from Australia, this kid, Edis. And so when I heard, you know, saw this and saw what she'd gone through and yet she still came out of it, I realised we're never alone, right? And, and the power of family, the power of people around you is, oh, it literally can lift you out of any form of this. And the amount of times that even my mum didn't know about me being homeless or anything like that, only now she's finding out that this was me and right. The amount of times that when I got on the phone with her, FaceTime with her and my brother and my family, the amount of times that got me out of just doing something stupid or doing something unnecessary to myself was incredible. So the power of not feeling alone and the power of family doing that and friends doing that is super powerful. So I released the song originally with Chris Martin a couple of years ago and it was a, it was a ballad version. It did well, you know, it got out, you know, a couple million views and, and streams and whatnot, right? And Chris and I performed it on a bunch of occasions. And then last year we thought, let's release a remix and so originally the remix was supposed to come out before COVID and that was it. But then certain things had delayed it and, you know, the music video was supposed to come out, certain things had delayed that and then COVID hit. And so we, you know, I, I called the label, I called the crew, I said, cancel everything. I don't want this music video that we're going to release or do released. I want to do something completely different. And they're like, okay but we shouldn't release anything right now, Emmanuel. And look, in hindsight, from an analytics perspective, yeah, they're probably right. 100% they're right, right? But do you know what? It was more than about analytics. It was more than about just 100 million views or getting views and things like that. It was more than about that. But what I did was I called up some of the friends that I connected, reconnected with and created and, and had attracted over the last three years after I got myself out of that hole and learned to love myself and manifest good people around me. I called some of these people up said, listen, I'm doing a music video for this song, Never Alone. I want to release it for COVID. I want to release it at the height of COVID. And look, if it does great, it does great. If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But the reality is this song is going to find the people that need it the most. This video is going to find the people that need it the most. And it did. It did. The amount of messages I got, I think I got something like 20,000 messages from people that I read over a six-month time, right? literally just reading through right? emails and messages that said, thank you for releasing this. Most artists wouldn't have released anything at this point, but thank you for releasing this. This saves my life, right? It's just COVID really has done this, but you know what? Realizing that I'm not alone saves my life. 
and seeing that other celebrities are encouraging me not to be alone, that saved my life as well. And so, yeah, we just, we released the song based on that mentality and based on the fact that we just wanted people to find it. But Never Alone is just about people stepping out of the darkness. It's that simple, stepping out of the darkness. And COVID was dark. I mean, it was really dark. And so seeing this as well, I realized, my God, how many people are experiencing this right now during COVID? It's, it's heightened people's mental health issues as well. And so that was a huge inspiration to just throw the song out, release it, and hope that it finds people. And it did. And it still is. You know, we got a massive Never Alone campaign starting this year with like Nike and Oracle that we're doing, right? So, you know, it still is finding people. If anything, it's actually finding people more now than it did back then, which is very unique and 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 the songs do that, you know, and that's what's powerful about music is sometimes song has a thousand views, right? And it's been three years later. It finds people at the time it's meant to find you. That's the power of music. You, you started. You said at the start of this, there's a, there's a few things you mentioned. You, you talked about the concept of perception early on. What would you want people to know about what they can do around their world as far as how much they control their perception? Yeah, I mean, you're in control of it, right? At the end of the day, listen to people. I had to really learn to listen and be observant of what's going on around me. Be open. The other day, I was talking to my mum and we were, you know, we were talking about marriage, for example. And I said, you know, I was saying, yeah, you know, mum, there are people in this world who have a different outlook on marriage. You know, some have open relationships, some have you know, three people in their relationship, some have, you know, polyamorous, some have this. How could you say that? That's so bad. You know, that, that's so wrong, Emmanuel. You know, that's so wrong. I said, but that's the thing, mum. There isn't a right or wrong. As long as you're not physically, mentally, and emotionally hurting someone, as long as you're not doing those things deliberately, right, then you're good as gold. And if you accidentally do it, as long as you realise that mistake, and apologize and, and change and become better, then you're good as gold. So I think being open-minded to the world being a different place, to the world having different human beings that look different, they might have giant rings on their ears and you're like, oh, my God, how do you do that to yourself? But you know what? They like that. It's their choice at the end of the day. So I think as long as you remember to have an open mind, and continue to have an open mind. It's it's not for you to judge them. So just remember, it's none of your business what others think of you. It's none of your business what you think of yourself. But that goes the same way. And that goes backwards as well, right? So it's also none of your business what you think of someone else, right? You know, someone's actions, as long as they're not hurting you, like I said, in those ways, you know, move on. Forgive and just be open-minded. Be open-minded. You mentioned it earlier, but I'm just wondering if you could reflect on this. What have you come to know about the difference between blaming someone for the situation you're in versus taking responsibility for the situation you're in? I've learned that everything in your own life, your own actions, uh, you grabbing a cup, you taking a piece of alcohol, you snorting cocaine, you, which is the things I've done, right? You, whatever it is, you typing on a keyboard, right? These are all you, 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 you. You're in control of those things. You're in control, right? Your choices make up where your future takes you. But the choice that you make ends up being a bad choice. It's not anyone's fault. That's your fault. The things you can't control are the weather, okay? You can't control whether you will stay healthy or not and you will live or not. So don't try. Don't try and control the things you can't control. Only control the things you can control. Focus on the things you can control. And live every day as though it's not your last. Live every day as though it's your first. Every single day. You know how that saying is the present is the present, so live the present? Why do you think it's called the present? It's a gift. You have no idea what's next. So live it as though you have no idea what's next. 
embrace what comes next. Emmanuel, I'm, I'm real grateful that we could connect and we could speak today. Thanks so much for taking the time for me, mate. mate. I'm really grateful. Thank you, man. No, I appreciate you. All right, brother. Take care. Awesome, brother. That was Emmanuel Kelly. His new single is called Never Alone. Get it wherever you get your music. I hope it does for you what he wanted it to do for you. Emmanuel's quite active online. You can reach out and uh, say, hey, great to have a chat with him. And I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to to speak with him because uh, he's a very inspirational human. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you need me, send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. I'll be back on Wednesday uh, with a quick visit with Yumi Steins. And thank you so much for everyone that helped me make this show. Thanks for Bruce Steele on research and production support, Andy Ma, my audio producer, and of course, the Grand Poobah, the woman that runs everything, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, not only of this show, but pretty much of my life. Uh, very handy when you can um, outsource uh, a lot of your executive functioning. <laughs> she makes sure she gets done. Thanks a bit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. In a part of the show, I really appreciate it. I'll see you on Wednesday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.